We wonder maybe why oh, someone gets so excited about the Lord and dances with joy. What you got to know about me is that I had this incredible, incredible debt that I could not pay off. Couldn't even give a nickel towards it. It was this incredible debt. And the Lord said, it is forgiven. It is done. And so I was once going to spend eternity paying off that debt and never would be paid off. And now you see I'm just destined for heaven where I can live in the glory of his grace and his love and his joy and his peace. And that makes you want to dance. It just is like, it is such a freeing, joyous thing. Praise God. That's what it's about. Uh, we've got a, a bunch of people who are, don't have seats. If there's seats by you, would you crunch in? Uh, come on, let's get, let's get cozy here. Just crunch in. And, and uh, uh, ushers, will you kind of point out, folks in the back, you don't have to be standing the whole service. Uh, and when the ushers just kind of tell you there's a seat available, why don't you just come up and, and take one of the, those things? Um, uh, another announcement is that uh, this Friday night, we're going to be on occasion at least using our, this auditorium that God's given to us. Uh, for concerts and you know Christian concerts and things like that, and um, the first one's going to be this Friday night. Uh, in fact, Sarah, who was uh, on, on the worship team up here, she's the one who testified about being adopted. Uh, she has a CD that is going to be released, and so this is sort of like a CD release concert celebration party, whatever you want to call it. And um, so, if you want to attend that, I'm telling you, she's a very anointed and incredible, gifted. Uh, worshiper and, and song leader. And a lot of the team that was up here will be there as well singing with her. And that's this, this uh, Friday at 7.30 right here. So uh, you're invited to attend. Praise God. Ushers, uh, will you come forward? We're going to take up the offering. This is continuing in worship, uh, giving uh, of a portion of what God's given to us. Everything we have has been given to us by God. And uh, part of what worship is, the essence of what worship is is ascribing worth to God, and we do that with our mouths, we do that with our bodies, but we also do it with how we steward our resources. How we steward our resources, financial and otherwise, says a great deal about what our values are, what worth God has to us, what worth the kingdom work has to us. And here God invites us to be participants in this. And um, so follow the Lord's leading in terms of uh, giving back to Him for the furthering of His kingdom, a portion of what He's given to you. Uh, I'm going to pray for the offering. I'm also going to pray for the message here. Could I get some people over here who will just commit themselves for the next half hour to be covering me in prayer? Good. Over here, some people that commit to praying for the message as it's going forth. A couple more. I'm feeling a... Okay, good. And over here, a bunch of people too. Good. Thank you very much. Just be covering this with prayer. Father, as we, Lord, worship you with our offering, God, we thank you with the acknowledgement that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. And we have nothing that we have not received. And God, it's a joy and an opportunity that we have to give back a portion of it to you, to the furthering of your kingdom, Lord. Bless it, Lord. Bless all those who give, who can give, and all those who can't give, Lord. Let your spirit descend on us. And now, Lord, as the word goes forth, I pray, God, that you would just use it, infuse it with your spirit, Lord, and use it to build uh, this body of people to be a community of people who live under and share outrageous mercy. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. I, last week, uh, gave a message about, um, about sin. We don't hear a lot about sin in our culture, but it's a reality in Scripture and it's a reality in our life. And the purpose for that wasn't to shame us, but to lead us to deepen our appreciation for God's outrageous mercy. And the purpose for 
realizing the truth about the severity of sin and then God's outrageous mercy is to create a people who extend outrageous mercy to others. And all of this confronts the myth. It's the seventh of the series of myths that we're confronting in the church. It's the myth that the church is a holy club. This message is so huge, I believe. I, I, uh, uh, just seeing how God used it last week and just uh, reflecting on it and praying about it, I just feel like it's not done yet. So what I want to talk about this morning is the myth of the church as a holy club, part two. Uh, this, this, this message cuts, I believe, to the core of what a great deal of evangelical uh, culture is not only guilty of, but even structured by. It's part of our identity uh, as a distinct culture group. To some degree, we get life out of the fact that we don't commit those kind of sins like those people do. To the degree that we do that, we infuse ourselves with self-righteousness. To the degree that we do that, at least I don't commit that kind of a sin. We're guilty of judgmentalism. And it's the opposite of what the Lord calls the body to be. Not only as a community, but as individuals we do this. We think, all of us to some degree, but those who have the gift of perception, who, are, who have a kind of prophetic mode, really are guilty of this usually to a large degree. And I know because I'm confessing this to you. We run commentaries in our mind about people's lives. We have, we're pronouncing judgments, secret judgments all the time in our mind. Look at that bad person. Look at that fat person. Look at that rude person. Look at that sinful person. Look at, you know, and whatever. And it's just inconsistent with what God's plan is for, uh, for the church to be used in, in ministering to the world. To the degree that we've got judgment in our minds and judgment on our lips, to that degree, the, the, the love and the mercy and the grace and the good news of Jesus Christ is blocked in flowing through us. And if we can learn to uncork that, then we uncork the power of God in our life to be used in, in ministering to people. This is a central message. I'm going to review uh, part of what we talked about last week. It's the kind of thing I think we, it bears repeating. Uh, I don't think we're going to all get it the first time hearing it. But I'm going to add some of the text that I didn't have time to add uh, last week, just to plow into it a little bit deeper. And then I'm going to try to apply it in, in two distinct ways to the church and ask the question, what is the community of people who are living under and, and extending outrageous mercy, what does that look like? And it really, if we're thinking about it consistently, consistently it looks quite a bit different from what a lot of churches look like most of the time. What we saw last week was this. Jesus uh, raises, he, he expresses what the bar is in terms of the righteousness we need if we're going to be compatible with God. And that bar is God himself. And the righteousness we need is God's righteousness, perfect righteousness. And so he says this. He spent a lot of his ministry time making sure that people understood where the bar was. He said in Matthew 5, it's not enough that you don't murder don't go feeling righteous about the fact that you don't murder because what you've got to know is that if you're angry with your brother or sister or if you insult your brother or sister or if you say or if you think you fool or you idiot or you nincompoop or anything like that, you're, you're in danger of hell. You're under condemnation. You've fallen short of the glory of God. And while socially it's a whole lot better to just be angry and not murder, it's a whole lot worse to murder instead of just being angry, socially that's true. In terms of standing before God, if you're angry or if you say you fool or if you insult somebody with your word or your mind, you're in the same boat as the person who commits murder. So there's no room for anybody who understands what's going on to be saying, at least I don't murder like you do or like that person does. You're guilty of the same thing. 
And anyone, is that enough just to not commit adultery? Don't go feeling good about the fact that you didn't commit adultery like this person, that, this other person that you know. Because Jesus says if you look on a woman or if you look on a man to lust after him, if you get a lust, lustful thought in your mind, you've committed adultery. Really, truly, honestly, you have committed adultery. And my honest conviction is that probably the majority of people in this congregation right now have committed adultery. So we're not in the position to start picking up stones and throwing them at people that we know who have committed adultery outside of the mind. We're in the same boat as they are. Socially, it's a whole lot worse to actually act upon it, yes. But in terms of standing before God, it's all one in the same. You are an adulterer. And then there's some people who are feeling righteous about the fact that when they got divorced and remarried, they met a technicality of writing on a certificate and whatnot. But Jesus says, you know what? Anyone, God's ideal plan was to have one partner throughout, throughout their life, one sexual partner throughout your, your, your life, and anything other than that falls short of that ideal and therefore is sin. And so he says, anyone who divorces his wife causes her to commit adultery. Anyone who marries that woman commits adultery. Again, Jesus isn't speaking socially. He's not saying, I'm going to take away the permission that God gave in the Old Testament, and we need to you know, stop allowing for that. God has always, by His grace and mercy, been willing to work with us in our fallen situation. He's always permitted divorce and remarriage. He just wants us to recognize that it's not His ideal and that we're sinners when we go into it. You've committed adultery just like the person who lusts in their mind commits adultery. So there's no room... For saying, at least I didn't, I didn't uh, divorce my wife for that stupid reason. At least I didn't get married for that reason. Confess the fact that you fall short of the glory of God. Jesus takes out from our feet any sort of pedestal that we might have to stand on to look down on somebody else. On the day of judgment, he says in, in Matthew 12, you'll give an account of every careless word you utter. Maybe now you can realize why I'm, I'm so overjoyed by the debt that I've been released from. Because I've got careless words all over the place. And if I'm going to give an account of every single one of them on the day of judgment, I am toast. I am toast. But that's the standard. You ever thought a careless thought or said a careless thing? Something that was frivolous, something that was unproductive, something that was maybe just thoughtless? You give account thereof on the day of judgment. That's where the bar is. There's really not a lot of room here for saying, well, at least I don't do that, and at least I don't do that. You think careless thoughts, you're in the same boat as they are. Matthew chapter 5, the standard is simply this. Be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And you mark, get set, go. Oh, you just blew it. And see, this is what we're to aspire towards. Honestly and truly, by the power of God in us, this is what we're to aspire towards. But let's not deceive ourselves and kid ourselves by thinking for one second that we actually have arrived there or we ever have arrived. And all it takes is one shortcoming to set us apart from God, to make us incompatible with God's righteousness. And this is why Paul reiterates this point over and over again. That all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's no one who does righteous. There's a, next to God's standard, no one has understanding. No one shows kindness. Uh, it's altogether worthless. You fall short of the glory of God. No one will be justified by the deeds of the law. The law there being the express written content of God's will. Including every careless thought you think and every lustful inclination you've ever had. All falls short of the glory of God. But the thing that, that, that makes the believer dance, the thing that, that uh, in spite of the severity of this condemnation that is on us, and God's got to reveal this to us because we, we tend to think of ourselves as pretty good people. You know, we compare ourselves to other people and by, we say, at least I don't do those kinds of sins, so that makes us feel good. But it's kind of like a three-foot pygmy feeling tall amongst a bunch of two-foot pygmies. 
You know, it's just that doesn't say a whole lot. You can, there's always somebody who I suppose does a few worse things than you do. So everybody can say, except the person who's at the very, very bottom, everybody else can say, well, at least I don't do that, and feel righteous about themselves. We've got to get, that, we've got to get this, that the criteria for sin isn't social, it's God. And all of us fall a billion, trillion, gazillion miles short of that one. But what makes the believer's heart dance and what infuses us with joy is that God, even though we fall far, far short, even though we stumble and, and, and uh, sometimes don't even try to live for Him, there's this love that overruns his, his justice. God proved, Paul says, He proved His love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we're yet in rebellion, He doesn't wait for us to first clean up our act. While we're still in sin, still in rebellion, He dies for us. In fact, He takes upon Himself our humanity. He takes upon Himself our sin. He takes upon Himself our judgment. And why does He do all that? For one reason. That we sinners might take upon ourselves His righteousness. That we sinners might take upon ourselves His love, His, his, his character. And so the Bible says that God made Him who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. God made Him who was without sin to be sin, so that those who have little else but sin could be made righteous. I like the way I said it that time. God made the one who didn't have any sin to be sin, so that those who have little else but sin could be made righteous. What kind of righteousness? The righteousness of God. That perfect righteousness. You're going to go to heaven, you need the righteousness that's compatible with God, and that's the be perfect even as the Father in heaven is perfect kind of righteousness. But the only way you can get it, unless you're going to achieve it, and good luck on that one, the only way you can get it is as a gift, praise God, as a gift, as something God just gives you by His outrageous, stupendous, unthinkable, fantastic, fabulous grace, praise God. It's a gift. Here, have a gift. Here's my righteousness. You can have it. And that's why the believer has joy. Now, the thing is this. Anybody who understands anything of what I just said, the last thing on earth you should ever be inclined to do is to start looking down on other people and to judge them. And it's just so grievous that the people of God going back to Israel, extended into the church today, are characterized by little else but judgmentalism. It's just bizarre. The one people on the planet who understand the score and the severity of sin and how much mercy they've received... Become judgmental of others. God knows this, and that's why the New Testament hammers on judgmentalism. Over and over and over again. And I want us to really enter into this, because it changes the nature of your life, and it changes the nature of the community when you internalize this. Jesus said, we saw it last week in Matthew chapter 7, don't go looking for, for specks in other people's eye when you've got a, a log in your own eye. We like to reverse this. See, a lot of evangelical culture is based on this. You know, we may have specs we're not perfect. It takes a very, very, very shallow person to actually think they're perfect, though they, there are people I've met who claim that. Uh, but any kind of introspection will lead you to see that, that you've got imperfections. So what we do is we relativize them. We go into moral relativism, and we do it in the, in, in the name of being you know, tough on, on morality. We relativize it and we say, well, our sins are specks, but theirs are logs. And, and God really doesn't like those logs, you know, the specks here. He understands, of course. Mine are specks, theirs is logs. It's really nasty on logs, so we come down on that. We go on crusades on that. Jesus says the opposite, reverses it. You know what? Your sin should be to you, the lust in your mind and the, the carelessness of your words and the fact that you don't pray enough and, and, and don't have God on your mind all the time. That should be to you a log. And everyone else's sin, whatever it may be, 
should be a speck to you. In fact, you shouldn't even go looking for the specks because how can you possibly see the speck with the log that is in your eye? Even our, we're maybe inclined to say this. Oh, why, is he, why is Greg talking so much about judgmentalism? I mean, that's kind of a, a speck compared to fornication, compared to homosexuality, compared to drunkenness, compared to whatever. Well, you know what? Your judgmentalism is the log you've got to deal with. Don't go looking for specks. It is a log. It's a major log in God's eyes. James chapter 4. Listen to this verse. It is so profound. James says, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's the single quest of the Christian life. We want to draw closer and closer and closer to Christ and be more Christ-like. How do you do it? Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's something you've got to do. Now, that will occupy you the rest of your life. And the only one who can do it for you is you. But he doesn't say cleanse their hands and purify their hearts. You do it yourself. Okay, this is what you can be concerned with. Humble yourself before the Lord. Any relationship with God that's genuine has got to be a humble relationship because you realize that anything you stand on is by God's mercy. You couldn't stand otherwise. Humble yourself, and then He will exalt you. He will transform you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. Whoever speaks evil against another, whoever speaks evil against another, or judges another, looks down on another, speaks it against another, thinks it against another, they speak evil against the law, and they judge the law. Obviously, the law is not good enough. It needs my help, is what he's saying. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge, that's God, who is able to save and to destroy. He's the only one who knows all that's going on. So who then are you to judge your neighbor? Okay, the goal here is the relationship with God's got to be humble. Here's what James is saying. But James is saying that if you are a judge of another, you're the opposite of being humble. Humble. In fact, if you're the judge of another, you're playing like you are the law. In fact, you're judging the law because you're saying the law is not good enough. I'm not going to trust God to work in their life. I, it needs my help. I'm going to judge them. I'm going to apply the law for them. You pretend like you are the law. In fact, when you judge another, every time you judge another, every thought in which you judge another, you're pretending like you are God. And that's the epitome of arrogance. It's not humility. So James says, be a doer of the law, not a judge of the law. Be a doer. In other words, here's your focus. Here's the one thing you should think about. The logs in your own life. You worry about how your own life is being transformed. And this should be your concern. This should be my concern. Be centered on how God's working in your life and the things that you're supposed to do and what God's calling you to do and how to get the logs out of your own life. Be a doer of the law. And if you're doing that, it's a full-time job and you're not going to have time for looking at specs. When we judge others, you know what we are doing? We're deflecting attention off of ourselves. We're deflecting conviction off of ourselves. That's why you cannot both be a doer of the law and a judge of the law. You can't do it. If you're, if you're trying to be God, you're not obeying God. And if you're trying to be the law, you're not obeying the law. James says, do the law. That's the one thing that, that, that you need to be focused on. Micah says it this way in, in the Old Testament, Micah 6, 8. He says, here's what the Lord requires of you, one thing. Do justice. Not be a policeman on how others are doing justice. Do justice. That's what you do. And then love mercy. You do justice. That's your concern. And then love mercy and walk humbly before your God. 
Because if you're doing justice, if that's your concern, walking with God, I want to be as transformed as possible. You know what? Uh, there's going to be so much I'm going to find there that I don't like that it's going to humble me. I will be reminded over and over again about the logs in my own life, and it will humble me. But what I'm not called to do is to find specks in other people's lives. When you find specks in other people's lives, you're not loving mercy. You see? Do justice. That's your job. Love mercy. That's your job. Walk humbly before God. That's your job. Being a policeman for specks in other people's eyes is not. Romans chapter 2, Paul says it this way. You are, you have no excuse, whoever you are, when you judge others. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. You say, well, we know God's judgment on those who do such things is in accordance with truth. God hates sin. That's true. Why do we always apply it to someone else's sin? We know that God does not like this. Do you imagine, do you fantasize, do you, are you so self-deluded, Paul is saying, whoever you are, that when you judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, you will escape the judgment of God? If you judge, you're going to be judged. That's what Jesus said. Don't judge or else you're going to be judged. You know, the one way to be assured that you're not going to be judged is not to judge. But if you judge, you're going to be judged. Because you do the same things, or do you despise the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? What, what Paul is saying here is this. When we cast judgment on others, when we put ourselves up on a pedestal and judge others, look down on others, have a running commentary on others, we stand condemned because we're guilty of the same things. Now maybe right now in your head you're saying, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. I only judge people for the sins I don't do. I'm not a hypocrite. At least I don't do those sins. You see, those are log sins, mine are spec sins. That's the epitome. That, that, that's exactly what Paul's talking about. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about. You are guilty of the same things. Maybe not the exact same literal sin, but you have lust in your heart. You have greed in your heart. You've got, you, know, you don't love God perfectly. You don't walk with God perfectly. You've got self-righteousness in your heart. You've got judgmentalism in your heart. You've got greed in your heart. You're guilty of the exact same things. Who are you, Mr. God, Mrs. God, to be playing judge of others? There's no room for it. You're a sinner condemned unless God exercises mercy for you. And that's why Paul says that when you do this, you mock the grace of God. That's what he says. You despise the patience and forbearance of God. God has infinite patience and forbearance with you, and yet you turn around and condemn another. You're mocking it. You're acting as though you yourself don't need it. If you understand the outrageous mercy that's extended, been extended to you, you, have, you can't do anything other than extend it to other people. Jesus gets at the same thing in, in Luke chapter 13. All over the place, you guys, this thing is hit over and over again. The one thing that you need to worry about is the log in your own eye. Jesus says this way. He points to this massacre that happened in, in Galilee when Pilate murdered all these Jews and mingled their, uh, mingled their, their blood with their sacrifices in sort of a mocking thing. It was just diabolical. And Jesus says to his audience, do you, do you think that God was punishing them because there were sinners than you or, or other Galileans? Uh-uh. But I'm going to tell you this. Here's what, here's what you need to be concerned with. You have to repent or you're all going to perish like that. And, and this tower, there's this tower that, that collapsed. It just happened. In a fallen world, a lot of stuff happens. It collapsed and killed 18 people. Do you think that God was judging them according to truth because they are worse sinners than you or anybody else? Jesus says, no, I'm going to tell you, no. What you should be concerned with is not trying to secretly divine the will of God in these things. 
feeling righteous about the fact these are this is Job's friends all over the place. Well, we the tower didn't fall on us. We must be better than they are. Rather, what you need to be concerned with is the log. And you need to repent of the log and get right with God. Otherwise, you're going to fall in the condemnation that you're giving these people. It's going to apply to you. You know, after the World Trade Center catastrophe, whenever a catastrophe happens, I, I brace myself because I know that some spokespeople are going to start saying things in, in the name of Christianity that's going to make us look bad. And this was true to form. And so some public spokespeople got on, on the TV or on the radio or it was going around in the, in the Internet and saying things like this. That this was the judgment of God. Okay, God, here's what God's purpose was in this. Who cares about the purpose of the terrorists or the purpose of Satan? No, this is the purpose of God. And, and the purpose was this. God was punishing us because of our sin. And now we'll tell you what sin it was. It's the log sin. Oh, yeah, none of us are really perfect. But he, he went after the logs this time, folks. He went after the ACLU. He went after the homosexuals. He went after, you know, the, the activists. He went after the liberals. He went after the abortionists. He went after the adulterers, you know. And so God's judging us because of those things. Now, to stand up and pontificate like that, look what's presupposed. Granted, I'm not perfect as I'm speaking here to all of you. This person would be thinking, but at least I'm not like the ACLU. At least I'm not like those homosexuals. At least I'm not like the abortionists. At least I'm not like the murderers. At least I'm not like the adulterers. And those are log sins. Oh, I got little specks, mind you. I, I'll grant that. But those are log sins, and God's really ticked off at logs, and that's why this catastrophe has happened. And if we get anything out of Luke 13, it's that that is exactly the thing that we're not supposed to do. Not only do we decide we're going to devise a self-serving selective moral list about what is logs and what is specs, something God forbids, but now we're going to try to discern the hand of God in punishing it because we know God's judgment is according to truth. You don't know diddly squat. Jesus is saying, you know, if you're going to play this game, the game ought to be this way. If you're really convinced that this was a judgment for sin, then why not start with the sins that Jesus really harps on, and that is the lust in your own mind, the greed in your own mind, the righteousness, self-righteousness in your own mind. If God's judging this nation, it might as well be for the fact that we've got sin in our lives, that we've got what we think is the judgmentalism that gets us to mistake our logs for being specks. Maybe God's judging that one. But see, the truth is, is that we're not to be playing that game at all. Because if that's the game, if that's the game that's being played right here, we're all going to perish, Jesus says, like the people under the tower, like the people uh, who got massacred by Pilate. We're all in serious trouble. If anyone stands, they stand by the unmerited mercy of God. So don't go playing God. Don't go playing theologian who can discern the hand of God behind the different events that happen. The one thing you need to be concerned with is be a doer of the law. The one thing you need to be concerned with is the log in your own eye. The one thing you need to be concerned with is to repent of what's in your own life and get right with God and call out upon his mercy. And the community of people who know this, and this ought to be the church, is the last place on earth you should ever find moralism or judgmentalism because we know the score. I, we have been saved by God's outrageous, fantastic mercy. We understand the severity of sin, and we're all guilty of it. Not just yesterday, not just specs, but today and logs. And so if we have anything going for us, it's because of God's outrageous, undying, unconditional love for us, and we stand by His grace. And you ought to be able to therefore find more self-righteousness and pompous moralizing going on in a prostitute house than you find in church. Because we understand what the score is. Jesus said this to his disciples, freely you have received and therefore freely give. Okay, if you got it for free, you give it for free. And what I am so acutely aware of is this. Everything I have is for free. I, he, he, I have no right on this planet to be sitting behind a pulpit preaching to people. None. 
I have no right to, 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 to be destined for heaven. If I have anything, it's because God freely gave it to me. And if I have been given this eternal salvation for free and forgiven an infinite debt for free, how could I have any stance other than free mercy coming from me? How can I ever think anything different of you? I don't care what your situation, other than this, freely extend to you what I myself have received. And where you have people freely receiving and freely giving, you have got the community of the people of God. And it's a community of outrageous mercy. Praise God. Outrageous mercy. Outrageous mercy. Let me uh, um, apply this in two areas very briefly here. Um, It it raises a number of questions because this is not how we're used to doing church. Uh, It raises a number of questions, and and I I can only deal with two of them here. Number one, if you preach this, and I know some of you are thinking this. It's normal to think this. If you preach this uh, message of outrageous mercy, aren't you going to create a community of people who are lax about sin? Doggone it, we need to get tough on sin. If you go preaching this mercy all the time, people are going to start saying, well, I guess I can sleep around then because God's going to forgive me anyways. In fact, if uh, God's so big on giving mercy, then, then I'm just kind of letting him do what he likes to do anyways by, you know, sinning. And aren't you just going to encourage that kind of uh, mentality? We need to get tough on sin. Okay, let's, let's, let, let me respond to this concern. Number one, we do need to get tough on sin. But we need to get tough on sin the way Jesus did, not the way moralistic preachers do. Jesus got tough on sin by really pointing out what it was and how we're all guilty of it. So when we say we're going to get tough on sin, let's, let's get tough across the board. Let's not devise some self-serving moral list arbitrarily contrived because we happen to avoid the ones that are on it and then start getting tough on those sins. Usually when people say we need to get tough on sin, what they mean is we need to get tough on those kind of sins that those kind of people do. Not my little speck ones, but those log ones. That's what they usually mean. But see, if we understand anything about the, 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 the teachings of Jesus, it's that we can't go making up this sort of scale about one being you know, bigger than the other. Whenever we come up with a moral list that, that we really need to get tough on, rather than paying attention to the logs in our own life, and we need to get tough on sin. I, that's absolutely true. But see, we, we invariably create lists that are convenient for us so we can feel righteous. You see? Feel good about ourselves. Well, that's not where we're supposed to be getting our life in the first place. I'm convinced that this is why the church loves to talk about homosexuality so much. You know, it's just the, it's the convenient one. It's the one that we can all feel pretty righteous about because the majority of people aren't that. And so, by golly, that's the worst of the whole bunch, isn't it? I want to submit to you today that judgmentalism is worse. Okay? Just in terms of the frequency on which it occurs in the Bible. But you know what? I don't even want to go there, okay? I, 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 don't want, I, I don't want the gay person to feel righteous now because at least they don't judge. No, it's all sin, all right? Let's get tough on sin all over the place. Okay, let's bring it down. Second thing is this. If you're worried that if you preach the message of God's uh, uh, grace, it, it, people will get lax on sin. That's one indication. If, if that's a concern. That's one indication that you're actually preaching the right gospel because that's the question that people had when Paul preached the gospel. You say, the flesh, the natural carnal mind, thinks this thought. It interprets grace as license. And that's a wrong way to interpret it, but it's the fact that people wouldn't be inclined to think that way shows that you're preaching the right message. So we hear this question in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Should we sin that grace may abound? Paul had to confront the question. Given this outrageous message of grace that Paul's been preaching, there were carnal people, and we're all carnal, who said, whoa, 
Man, this is, this is a freebie. That means that, that we've got space. And, and, and then and we can uh, you know, send that God's grace may abound. Let's do him a favor. He likes to forgive us. We like to send. What a nice arrangement. We'll send so he can forgive us. Now, Paul, this is, this is the exact wrong thing to think. You've really misunderstood the boat uh, when, when, when you think that thought. But I want us to look at Paul's solution to it. Paul doesn't all of a sudden devise a selective moral. He doesn't say, okay, well, what are the particulars that are going on in the, in the church at Rome? I want to find the, the various things that individuals are doing, and I'm going to really hammer on them so that I can create a little social fuel here to get them to have conformity in their behavior. Paul's very concerned about holiness in the church, but that's not the way he goes about bringing it about. Because the reality is that even if you pressure someone socially to conform in terms of their behavior, you haven't done them a favor You've just manipulated their behavior. What God wants is not good-looking people. He wants people who are transformed from the inside out. So look at how Paul deals with this issue. He says, no, you shouldn't sin that grace may abound. And then he tells them who they already are in Christ. Don't you know? Don't you, don't you know that, that, that you've been buried with Christ, that you've died in Christ? Uh, how can we who died to sin, we really have died to sin, go on living in it? We know that our old self, it really is old, was crucified, it really was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed, it really was destroyed. And we might no longer be enslaved to sin. The death Christ died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So also you must consider yourself, think about yourself, see yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Ah, oh, this is just so powerful. Paul doesn't shame them into uh, right behavior. What he does is he reminds them of their identity in Christ. What happened to Christ happened to you if you accept it. If you put your trust in Christ, if you surrender your life to Christ, his death is your death and his life is your life. You really are a new creature in Christ Jesus. You really are holy and righteous and blameless. God isn't just looking at you with Jesus' spectacles pretending like you're holy. You really are holy. You really are righteous. You really are redeemed. You really are filled with the Spirit. You've got His sanctified blood running through you. Now the only question is this. Why would you continue in sin when it's against your nature to do it? That's how Paul motivates transformation. And what happens is this. That, you see, you tell people what their identity in Christ is, and they don't always start seeing themselves that way, and they don't always start acting that way. And so a lot of people say, well, then now we've got to call in the law. Now we've got to, you know, we tried the grace thing. It doesn't work. Now we've got to, like, you know, flex the, flex the law muscle and get some conformity. But let's be careful here. If you're going to start doing that, I'm the first one to go because I don't walk in my identity in Christ perfectly. Oh, I got the identity. God's working on me. He's, he, he's doing the work. But you know what? It takes time. It doesn't happen all of a sudden. Um, and, and so I'm not going to be too quick to come after you because you don't walk in total identity with Christ because I don't walk in total identity in Christ and I don't want to be judged, so I'm not going to judge you. God gives me space to grow and so I'm going to give you space to grow. And here's the thing, that, here's the thing you find. When an, a community of outrageous mercy gives space for people to grow, it takes time and it may look messy, but when it works, it really does work. Whereas when you try to just manipulate external conformity and behavior, it may look like it's working, but it's not working at all. What God's after is real transformation. When we give space by God's mercy and grace for people to grow, change comes on the inside. They, it's a process of waking up. That's how it is in my life. It's a process of discovering your identity. That's how it is in my life. 
And when a change comes, it's real change. I had a, a couple uh, several months ago. I changed the details of every story I tell so that if you think you know who I'm talking about, I guarantee you that's one proof that you don't know who I'm talking about. So I changed it. This couple came to me, and, and, and the guy said, uh, you know, we, we've been coming to church for, for you know, uh, six, seven months or so. First time in church, never been to church before, didn't know the Bible at all, but they got saved. They gave their hearts to the Lord. God's working in their life. It, it's revolutionizing everything. And he says, you know what, I talk, I've been talking to God a lot, and, and, uh, and I think he's talking back. It's like, oh, that's wonderful. I, 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 you know, I'm not sure, but I think he's talking back. And last night, uh, I was praying, and, and uh, I think he told me I'm supposed to stop having sex with my girlfriend. And I went, you think? And, and he goes, I, you know, I, I, now my girlfriend thinks, she's a Christian too, but she thinks I'm getting kind of fanatical and stuff. Do you think that that's right? Did I hear from God on that one? And I said, you know what, I, I think you did. And, and, and now, see, they invited me in on their life to, to now do a little bit of a teaching. And it's beautiful to see. Now, they've been living together for three or four years, and, and, and they had now some issues to deal with. You know, uh, he was sitting there, yes, I knew I was hearing from God. And she's like, oh, man, this is, this, you know. But, but her heart was to follow God. She was just a little frustrated at the whole thing. But now, now there's a lot of complexities you've got to work out. Life gets complex. But the beautiful thing is this. They're moving in the right direction, you see. And, you know, if I would have went to them seven months ago, and, and right after they raised their hand, said, okay, I want to I, I police your life, tell me what's there, you know, yada, 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 and confronted some stuff like that, there would have been guards put up all over the place. It would have went anywhere. But because they grew, at it, God working in their life, growing at their own pace, there's a transformation that occurs. A community of outrageous mercy is a community that gives people... It doesn't condone anything. But we don't... The place where we should apply that truth is our own life. The logs in our own life. It doesn't condone it. It just is realistic in saying, you know what, God's, God's not finished with us. The last thing is this. last issue is this. Um, doesn't the Bible talk, say that we're supposed to encourage one another? That we're supposed to hold each other accountable? Right? The Bible says that. We're, we all need to be in relationships where we can be held accountable. Because I know in my own life, um, I, I, won't walk, I won't walk it straight. I, won't, I, won't, I need people to, to tell me if I'm getting off track here or there. So doesn't the Bible say that we're supposed to hold each other accountable? James 5 says, confess your sins to one another. All right? And, then, and, and, and uh, Ephesians 4, Paul says, speak the truth to one another in love. So how do you do, how do, you do accountability without judging? Here's how you do it. Notice, the Bible is assuming that you're in relationship with a person when, when there's this, this accounting going on. It's not just done to strangers. Here's the thing that's odd. We know, don't we, that you can't just walk into anybody's house. You don't just barge into a stranger's house. or somebody you meet for the first time, you just walk in without knocking. You know, um, we don't do that. You certainly don't walk into someone's house and then just start offering your opinions about everything. Oh, nice sink. What kind of carpet's that? What, kind of, what, what do you think with that wallpaper? Oh, yeah, get it out of here. You don't do that. You don't do that. But what's odd is that Christians do this all the time with people's hearts. You know, we just, Mr. and Mrs. Bulldozer, pile right in. Here's what I think about your life. And so understandably, people get guards up saying, whoa. You know why people don't, a lot of people don't come to church because they don't feel worthy. Ah, I hate that thought. But it's because they've been barged into, they've been violated. You know, like, like the police force coming in there saying, this has got to go, this can stay, this is, you know. And we just, the thing is this, people's hearts and people's lives are far more personal and complex than the houses would ever be. If you wouldn't bulldoze into their house, why would you bulldoze into their life? We, especially when the Bible says that's not what we're to be concerned with, unless they invite you. 
You see, sometimes people feel this need. It's like, uh, if I'm with somebody who's living in sin, like you're not, but if I'm with somebody who's living in sin or they got something, if I'm going to hang around with them and be friends, if I don't say something, then I'm condoning it. You know, I'm just saying that it's okay. So they, you feel like after 10 minutes after you know them, you have to make, pronounce a commentary on what you think on their life. Mr. and Mrs. God. You see, here's the thing. If you really have this compulsion to verbalize sin, Otherwise, you're condoning it. Fine, verbalize it. But do it the way Jesus says to do it. Start telling them about your sin. All right? And start verbalizing. You, you, you get tough on sin by all means. Start with the lust in your mind. Start with the fact that you're coveting the, their, their nice car that you can't afford. I mean, start going, you know, that might actually tear down walls rather than put walls up. The bottom line is this. We should only go where we're invited to go. Now, we do need people to invite us in. All right? And, and we need to invite others in. But if you're invited into the kitchen, you only go in the kitchen. You don't start prancing up in the bedroom. Not yet. They may invite you there later on. Final thing is this. You know, we, we, we do this with our minds sometimes, even if we don't do it with our words. And that's just as bad. We see somebody, we confront somebody, and all of a sudden we start pontificating in our mind. Oh, yik, yik, yik. And to see, to the degree that we have that, we clog the flow of God's love and grace in our life. And it's just... It's just ungodly. When the Lord was first working on me, again, I changed the story details because the person might be here. I was in a homeless shelter some time ago. And uh, there's this person that was there. We are ministering there. And there's a person there who just looked and who just sounded and who just smelt, uh, you know, ungodly, uh, oh, demonic, scowl, ta- weird tattoos everywhere, pierced, every orifice was pierced, and just this, and reeked with, with alcohol and, 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 you know, like a chimney and all this other kind of stuff. And so immediately in my mind is like, oh, ah, what is this? Oh, man. I see, but God's been working on me in this area because as soon as I, I get those kind of thoughts, a flag comes up and says, did I hire you to do that? And it's from God. And the Lord says this, and I want to share it with you. Do you know anything about this guy's house? Do you know anything about his life? You're seeing the last sentence of a very long novel, and how can you judge the novel on the basis of that last sentence if I did tell you to judge it? I mean, uh, and which I didn't. But you're seeing the tip less than the tip of an iceberg. Lives are long and complex and very uh, prolonged affairs, and you just can't make judgments on them. Not that you should ever make judgments anyways, but even if you wanted to, you couldn't based on what you see. The Lord was basically saying this. Do you Remember, just keep in mind that this was once a little newborn baby to a mama who loved, who loved him. And what might happen in the life of a person to bring him to this point 35 years later or however old he was do you have any idea of the abuse he might have suffered do you have any idea of of how tough his life has been do you do you know what it might have done to him if he saw his father stabbed by a gang or what it was like to not be chosen ever on someone's baseball team or what it was like to be a part of a gang where he had to do outrageous things just to have some sense of community or what it was like to have his mother abandon him or what it was like to have a girlfriend abandon him or what it was like to be arrested for the police when you didn't commit the crime or what it was like to live in a society that's got struck racism all, all over the place. Do you have any idea about any of that? Do you have any idea about the pain that this guy has gone through or the pain he might be in in this very second? No, you don't have a clue. And therefore, the only thing you can do to that person is extend mercy to them and is to love them and is to bless them. Do to them what God has done to you. It's the only thing you can do. And until the person invites you in on their house, 
You don't, you don't need to have an opinion. You don't even have a, God's the one the Lord, the one lawgiver, the one judge. He'll do the right thing. You don't even have to have an opinion. All you need to know is this. You do justice, and now you love mercy. And just let the, and let, let the mercy flow. And when you collapse the judgmental thoughts, man, it just, uh, you, see, you develop a love for this guy. And you just want to move in and just, just surround him with the love of Christ. And that, folks, is what we're called to do. There's a place for accountability in our relationships. We need that. We need that. I've got a small group. They've got permission to come into my life, and I've got permission to go in their life because I know that they're safe and that they're not going to judge me. I know their sin. They, they know my sin. They've got more than I do for sure. But, but uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, we need covenant groups. Everything else is about mercy. I want to end with this question. Close your eyes and pray. I just need to, I, I, it would be wrong for me to leave this, this service and not give anyone a chance who's never done it to receive God's mercy. Are you here this morning and you need the mercy of God because you realize that you're a sinner and you can't stand before God on your own? And if you are, would you raise your hand? If you've never surrendered your life to Christ in the back there, over there, praise God. Uh, you're saying, I need the Savior. I need the Savior. Amen. Over there. A few over there. You need Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I'm not going to call you up. Thank you over there. And this isn't about how good you've been or how bad you've been or anything like this. It's about do you recognize your needs. Sister on the, by the wall, amen. Keep praying, folks. Over here, praise God. God is so overjoyed. This is my favorite part of every service. I just love to see this happen. Surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Anybody else? We're just going to all pray together back there. Amen. Up here, praise God. Oh, wonderful, brother. Amen. Amen. You're surrendering your life to Jesus Christ. You're saying, God, I, I, I don't want to give account of every careless word I've ever thought. Back in the, in the back, I see your hand. Wonderful. You surrender your life to Jesus Christ. There must be 20 people here. Amen. Over there. Thank you. Uh, praise God. Wonderful. Just keep praying. That's that. You, you say, I surrender. I need Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And you're going to surrender your life to him. Okay, let's pray. Those who raise your hand, pray this like a wedding vow that I would lead you in. The rest of us are going to join with you in support, but pray from the depths of your heart. The Bible says if you believe in your heart, over there I see that hand. Praise God. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you shall be saved. And there's no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. So pray with me here. Heavenly Father, I acknowledge that you are holy and that I am a sinner. I need your grace, and I need your mercy. I believe that you sent Jesus to die for my sin. And now I ask you, Lord Jesus, to forgive me. Wash me. Make me clean. Live inside of me. And help me live for you the rest of my life. I surrender it all to you. Amen. Welcome to the Holy Club. <laughs> Just kidding. Oh, praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Amen. Amen. Those who raised your hand, if I could ask you to do this, in the back of the auditorium, right in the middle there, we've got a packet we put together for people when they commit their life to Christ. It will help you get started on this Christian walk. And I want to encourage you to take one minute out and see Chuck back there and, and get this information. 
Uh, would the prayer team come forward? And if you have a need that you need to have prayed for, we encourage you to stay. Covenant Partners, we're going to be meeting in about half hour. You can pick up your name tags back there and get some pizza. Let the love of God be poured on you. Let the love of God flow through you to every single person you're going to meet throughout the week in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. We love you. We'll see you.